we we're more critical now. We're, we're kind of more we're thinking more critically about our identities and our backgrounds and our history and our culture. And I think Sudan should Sudan and Sudanese individuals should look at their own identity and start. And kind of embracing the reality that we are obviously this fusion of you know, Middle Eastern Arabs and 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 Africans, and I think the food also is a good example of that. So it shows you that it's this complex mixture. I just think it's time to to really question how Middle Eastern we are, just because we speak Arabic and we make some some foods. I don't think that that's enough. This is Instant Coffee, where we explore everything related to food in the Middle East. We're Ribail and Nadine, and on this episode, we spoke to Omar Tejani, cook and founder of the Sudanese Kitchen. Like many of us living away from home, it was only after Omar left for university that he started appreciating and missing his mum's cooking and tried to recreate this comfort for himself and for others. The Sudanese Kitchen is a celebration of Sudanese food and the country's cultures, identities and complex history. Amr is also working on publishing his first cookbook and organizes supper clubs for those curious about Sudanese food. Taking on a project like this requires a lot of time and dedication. We wanted to know if Amr had any inspirations, people that encouraged him to start the Sudanese kitchen and helped him keep going. I definitely feel like I've been quite fortunate in kind of my upbringing and, and what kind of access I've had to certain Sudanese foods and different environments and people have been very generous to me in many ways. A lot of them are my family members, of course. And for example, grandparents specifically. I just feel like they're the ones that inspired me. And they're, they they always did so much to just make us as, as happy and as comfortable as possible. And this is, I guess, my way of kind of showing that appreciation, really. I know you describe yourself as an archivist. Where do you go to get your to get your recipes, to get your information about Sudan and Sudanese cuisine? I guess it starts uh, very close to home. So it's like family, parents, aunts, people who I trust, uh, who have made good food and I've, I've eaten it or a, a very specific thing. Specifically with Sudanese food, there's certain aunt or ladies that are known to make a particular thing, whether it's a stew or a salad or a dessert. And I tend to sort of look for these individuals that are known for making uh, good good types of food and then uh, yeah travel I guess traveling around in Sudan I've only been a, a few times on the road traveling around but that's a really good source of information getting really rare recipes how do people react to you coming in from the outside and asking them this kind of question do you get any kind of negative response from people there so many people are really nice and welcoming for the most part that's that's just how they are but every now and again you sometimes feel like people are a bit protective of uh, certain things maybe a recipe or something like this or even to some degree like their culture generally and they see me not necessarily as an outsider because i'm speaking to them in arabic and they know that i'm sudanese based overseas but somewhat i i feel some resistance sometimes i think that they have this fear uh, and it's only happened a couple of times that people fear people coming in and kind of scooping up all this information and then and then leaving and, and then profiting from it financially, specifically financially. They think that I'm going to go away and make a lot of money from this information, which if you understand books, it's not really it's not really a, not a thing. What have you found in your travels around Sudan? Like, have there been any recipes that have stood out for you? Things with camel milk and things with uh, mushrooms, which I didn't know existed in, in some parts of Sudan. 
goat stews, which also I haven't had much access to in Sudan. Uh, so yeah, very, very surprising things all the time. I think the, the more I dig, the more I get surprised. Omar is writing his cookbook to preserve recipes for the next Sudanese generation. He also wants people interested in food from anywhere and of any age to be able to pick up the book and start making something Sudanese. His audience is mainly based in big cities like London and New York. It's sometimes difficult to find certain ingredients outside of Sudan, so he has adapted his recipes accordingly. There are ingredients that are harder to find. You will eventually find them, and there might be one place in London that has it, but it's obviously here. And if you live in like a more remote place, you, you, you know, probably shouldn't make that recipe. But even if you live in a remote place, 80% of the book, you should be able to access it from your local kind of supermarket or whatever. It's just kind of common things. Maybe 20%, you might have to go into an urban center, London, New York, Toronto, whatever, and find these rarer ingredients, which might be like ground okra or ridla, um, purslane. Like the other day, I went to Peckham and I was looking for uh, fish powder, which um, in Peckham is everywhere, but I couldn't find it anywhere else in London. And on your website, you say that you're providing accurate information about Sudanese cuisine. What do you mean by this? And how much writing about Sudanese food is actually out there at the moment? Uh, what I meant by uh, accurate in that, in that particular sense is that there is some information about Sudanese food. Not a lot, but there is some online. And often it's somewhat inaccurate. So like either it's missing an, an ingredient or it doesn't contain the amounts. It just says the name of the ingredient and doesn't tell you how much of it to use. This is because you know people have just written it in like a quick way or something and like, oh, you need these items and then you do this to it. And I feel like even the, the technique is a bit too oversimplified. And what I try to do is accurately uh, state that the ingredients that you need, all of them, and their amounts, which is quite difficult to, to get. And then an accurate technique that's going to work every time. So I just meant kind of accuracy throughout because there is limited information on Sudanese food and it's not necessarily presented in the best way. From our conversations with Amar, it was clear to us that the women in his life, like his mother, his grandmother and his aunts, played a major role in his journey with food. But he also spoke about cooking as a man in society, where the mothers and matriarchs are in charge of food. We wanted to explore this relationship between gender and food a bit more, so we spoke to PhD candidate Jennifer Shutek. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which foodways and culinary landscapes are tied to identity, migration, and also to larger systems and structures of power and inequality. Jennifer researches and teaches the intersections between built environments, foodways, and power structures with a focus on Palestine and Israel. So uh, one of the fieldwork trips that I took to Palestine, I was based in, in Bethlehem for a month about and was living with a Palestinian family there. And so I spent between five and eight hours a day, almost every day of the week, with the sort of matriarch of the family. And it was really interesting. She was in her 60s. And so I spent time with her and through her, a number of, of her friends, her sort of very dense social network. There's something I think very interesting happening with these with these women who, you know, in a sort of um, classical formulation have less power because of their gender. But in fact, through their uh, culinary knowledge, through their embodied knowledge of how to 
cook and how to provide for their extended families, they maintain actually a sort of exceptional place of power in the family um, because everybody relies on them, right? The, you know, they are still cooking for their adult sons who are married and have children and they sort of guard their recipes and their culinary knowledge in a way because it is, I think, a method of power. It's also a way of kind of maintaining your social networks with your family, right? You you build in through a sort of proprietary embodied culinary knowledge, a sense of really deep importance. Um, and you are a knowledge keeper in the community. And I think we think of knowledge keepers maybe in a lot of ways that aren't necessarily food related. Um, but I think especially in these kitchens, you can see the way in which older generation women are very important nodes of culinary knowledge. Um, and as a result, they are sort of from a physical, biological, caloric, nutritional perspective, essential you know, being a man, being interested in food, they were very kind of puzzled by the whole situation and they were questioning it a lot. Like, why, why do you want to know? Why are you interested? And in some senses, they were like, no, this is, this is not for you. This is not information that you should be having. So kind of gate, gatekeeping in many ways. And then as I told them that I'm working on this book project and I'd like people to have access to it, you know, they warmed to the idea. And, and I think it's this kind of this, this dismantling of kind of gendered norms in Sudan and in the region, really. So cooking or uh, food-related topics are seen as kind of a women's domain. And so there's there's a an aspect, a sort of almost sociable grumbling that happens that we're doing so much work. And I've, I've asked, you know, why don't you teach your, especially your sons, how to cook or how to clean in the way that you want? And they sort of say, oh, it's too much work for, for that. But I do believe that there is a subtext under that, that of course, of course, they could teach their children and they could teach their sons or their daughters exactly how to do um, to, to reproduce these recipes. But I, I actually do believe that there is a very conscious um, way in which sort of matriarchal power is held through through keeping these recipes and through choosing who gets to receive them. I think it's this idea of domestic cooking that's seen as as a woman's role. And this idea of like showcasing a cuisine and kind of working in restaurants and having this kind of gourmet style or whatever, that that's seen as something um, that a man would do. And it'd be, it'd be quite funny, actually, because some family members, when, when I told them I'm, I'm, you know, writing a book about food, they're very, they're very much supportive of the writing aspect because they think that writing is a, is a man's profession, but they're not interested in the, the cooking part. So they, they, they get a bit confused. And I think we should challenge both, obviously. Being brought up in Lebanon myself, my geography teacher made sure that we memorized the list of all 22 Arab states. So to me, naively, Sudan was very much part of the Arab world. We always questioned our Arabness or our identity as Lebanese, some even claiming to be Phoenician. But the discussion about identity in Sudan as a country never really reached us. Looking through the lens of food, we asked Omar if he sees any continuity between Sudanese food and cuisines from the Arab world in the Middle East. So there absolutely is that continuity between uh, Middle Eastern food generally and Sudanese food. There's a, there's a lot of overlap, I should say. So there's... No typical kind of Middle Eastern things, tamia, different types of salads and things like this. Many different like ways of making, I don't know, rice dishes or anything like this. And using spices. So the, yeah, definitely the use of spices, these type of very Arab um, Middle Eastern style food. Uh, that also has roots in kind of Turkish food as well, because Sudan was a couple of hundred years ago, it was a Turkish colony. So a lot of Turkish influence was put into Sudan there. So there's a lot of Turkish influence and Middle Eastern generally. 
but the food also represents a lot of West African traits, um, some things that are like that was brought over into Sudan as West African migrants who are moving through Sudan to get to Mecca and then end up staying in Sudan and making their food there. Things like Agashe or Asida and things like this, very kind of West African foods that are now Sudanese foods. So Sudan really has this really interesting uh, kind of fusion of cuisines. So I just think that when it comes to our identity, it's just something that's very complicated and complex and it always has been. And I think historically, Sudan's always aligned itself, yeah, politically, I'd say even culturally, more with the Middle East than it has with neighboring countries um, in East Africa. previous episode with Omnia Shaukat, we spoke about the country's unique position between Africa and the Arab world. And we wanted to dig deeper into Omar's statement, so we spoke with Hajuj Kuka. Hajuj is a Sudanese filmmaker and activist. He directed the film Beats of Antonov, a documentary film released in 2014. It follows the conflict between government forces and the Sudan Revolutionary Front in the Blue Nile and Nuba Mountains, looking at how music helped communities throughout. The music you hear on this episode is taken from the film. And if you haven't done so already, I ask you to please get yourself on Vimeo and watch the film ASAP. Well, after you finish listening to this episode, of course. The thing about Sudanese identity and, and the thing that got me thinking a lot about it is when we had a separation. and We became two countries. And if you have an identity of Sudanese and then suddenly your half or a third is gone, becomes different, you start questioning yourself. Like, what is my identity then? What is What is this? country identity that I belong to. Part of it starts like trying to find out what is it, what does it mean to be Sudanese? What is it Sudanese? And at the time we had a military dictatorship. It was a military Islamic dictatorship that enforced everybody to be one thing, which wasn't true to us. So where I am from, I didn't adhere to that identity. So growing up, I always, we always in the house will say this, those Sudanese, the Sudanese, no, no, no. So we didn't ourselves think about it because my grandmother didn't speak Arabic. So grew up with not knowing where, where, how I belong to this country and thinking that that's them, that the center, that's the Sudanese. So, uh, and that reflects in everything. It reflects on your music, it reflects on how you dress, how you view yourself, how you view others who you're supposed to belong to, but you see yourself, you don't. I always had that identity thing, but to me, it was very rooted. I was like, ah, I'm always, uh, this, I'm, I'm Nubian. So I always went back to that root, which a lot of Sudanese be, people do. You go back to a different root that's not Sudanese. We, we're more critical now. We're, we're kind of more, we're thinking more critically about our identities and our backgrounds and our history and our culture. And I think Sudan should, Sudan and Sudanese individuals should look at their own identity and start um, kind of embracing the reality that we are obviously this fusion of you know, Middle Eastern Arabs and, and, and Africans. And I think the food also is a good example of that. So it shows you that it's this complex mixture. I just think it's time to, to really question how Middle Eastern we are. Just because we speak Arabic and we make some, some foods, I don't think that, that's enough. 
And something I notice a lot about our food is when, when we have people coming to us, Sudanese people tend to hide our food. The dishes change. Like we had the terkin, yeah? So the terkin is this fermented fish. So normally in my house, we used to do it every Friday. There's more than one way to prepare it. And the original way, uh, it's actually eaten just raw. And something that I discovered later, uh, we don't, normally don't put uh, tomatoes in it or anything. Because tomato came from the New World, so it came from Mexico, so traditionally it's not there. But when we have guests, suddenly it's cooked and you add tomato and it becomes this other dish that I don't like as much. This is like if a Sudanese comes in. If a non-Sudanese comes in, turkey needs to be nowhere seen because it smells really strong. And the dishes suddenly change and suddenly you have bread and rice and the dishes don't look like us and we'll have like food and tamia so suddenly our food will completely change we're trying to be good hosts but we expect the other not to like our food even when i went to other countries and i saw sudanese restaurants and they don't serve sudanese food they would serve middle eastern you'll say tamia and they'll just add a sudanese touch of peanut butter we like peanut butter Although peanut butter also came not from us, it came from the new world. But I actually, when I started discovering that all these foods didn't originate from us, and I started trying to figure out, so if I take tomatoes out and if I take the peanut butter out, what is our food? The Sudanese revolution that started in December 2018 united its people in demand of economic and political reform and freedom. It was a major turning point for the country and its people. When that started, um, there was a big sit-in that happened. Uh, that later on was dismantled by uh, the Janjaweed, the rapid response force, and a lot of people were killed. But during that sit-in, it was the first time a lot of people came together from different backgrounds, from different way of thinking, from different cultures. So, so they all got together in the sit-in, and they started discovering each other. They, were, they started discovering food uh, that was being celebrated. Uh, there was, they were discovering music, they were discovering dance, they were discovering languages. People started discovering each other and, and by that started to discover their identity or not. Sadly, the sit-in was destroyed. And after the sit-in, everybody just went where they came from. So there wasn't again that let's get together and let's celebrate our, our diversity. People are kind of in a more enlightened place, in a, in a more critical place in yeah a more rebellious space rebelling against the kind of norms that that we had been kind of conditioned by kind of media and the government for so long even other things about like um saying that south sudanese people aren't 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 our people aren't sudanese people and that we should you know we should this is the government of Ahmed bashir obviously so we need to reevaluate that in some ways so i think a lot of sudanese Young people, older people, I think for, for quite a few decades, actually, have gone under quite a lot of brainwashing. So I think now it's time to think critically, look around us and questioning these norms. Thank you for listening to Instant Coffee, a podcast brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre. Join us every other Tuesday for a new episode. To learn more about Jennifer, Hajuj, and of course, Amar, follow the links in the podcast description. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our channel.